Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Today, we're coming to you with our first episode on a cult. And we wanted to cover one that we hadn't heard of before. So we found the Ant Hill Kids. It's real rough. Oh, it's rough. This is our most gruesome episode so far. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're a little squeamish, this might not be the episode for you. But we will give a heads up before we get into the real gross, horrible things. Yeah. So the Ant Hill Kids are led by Rock Turio. The name of the cult comes from the cult members ant like work ethic. I feel like normally the cult name comes very early on and isn't named after the members. It's person based or ideology based, not, hey, we work really hard to make baked goods. And when we talk about it being gruesome, it's mainly the methods of discipline from Rock himself, as well as what he forces his cult members to do. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that the work ethic or, you know, the anthill part of it, they were worked to the bone. <laughs> they had very long hours and very little food. So makes total sense why they brought this name up, but it is different. Rock was born in Quebec, Canada in 1947. He alleges that he had an abusive father, but folks aren't sure if that's true or if that's a story he told, so he seemed more sympathetic. His father was a militant conservative Catholic, and he belonged to a sect called the White Berets. And some think that might be why he started to really push back against the Catholic Church, because, spoiler alert, he's going to leave the Catholic Church. But not before becoming obsessed with the Old Testament. I think from what I looked at, the parts that really spoke to him were the parts that had strict masculine authority figures. He dropped out of school when he was 13 and he eventually converted to a Seventh-day Adventist. And he was actually like really active in his church community and he organized seminars. He was known to be a really good salesman who could help get other people kind of into the religion. Stories of Rock describe him as being really charismatic and, and a, quote, born entertainer, even a prankster. Generally, folks thought that he was the type of person who like only meant good and that he was good natured. So what we're going to find out is going to feel not like that. And it's interesting to me that he had that persona, right, where people were drawn to him. I mean, it makes sense. That's how he was able to get his followers, obviously. But it's interesting to me to see that a lot of people that become crazy cult leaders have the same personality. I watched a documentary on the whole group. And in the documentary, an investigative journalist named Ross Laver, who also worked on a book about it called Savage Messiah, he discussed stories that he had heard from people that actually knew him or had met him before. And then he also brought up that people, including professional psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, you know, people in professional fields were even blindsided by what he actually had become. He was able to fake it with professionals and came across as just like a normal, nice, well-mannered man. We keep teasing some gruesome stuff, but we're going to get to it. But I would imagine that it would have to be the case that he would have to be the type of person who draws people in and is charismatic and funny and kind and just a magnet for good people. Because otherwise, you couldn't get away with doing this to other human beings. That totally makes sense to me. What I was surprised with is that he was able to come across to professionals that should be very good at diagnosing that sort of behavior and they weren't able to with him. 
Okay, so here's my thing. I think that everyone who does any job anywhere has a degree of how experienced and good they are at their job at that snapshot. And that doesn't necessarily, so they don't have the potential to be a prolific psychologist or what have you. But the type of manipulator that they were dealing with when they met Rock, they were (laughs) not prepared. To be able to get away with this kind of stuff, you have to be great at manipulating people. Like just gold medal manipulation here. Right, right. Grade A manipulator. One of the interviews I had watched with an expert on sociopathic behavior mentioned something like, yeah, once, once they get to adulthood, it's hard. But if it's caught early there might be a chance at helping because it it has a lot to do with personality disorders and they have to be identified early. Otherwise, it's almost hard to stop it, which I found really interesting. Can I just tell you, this is not related, but it's related. Here's what I'm imagining. I'm imagining Jim Carrey in the mask (laughs) and he becomes the mask persona where he's like that guy who's cool and knows all the things and everybody wants to be his friend. And I'm thinking of the dog who had the mask. But that's kind of what it makes me think of is that they kind of create this persona and the persona becomes them. And then you're kind of empty if all you are is a persona, if all you are is like an outward facing shop. Well, he talked about megalomania and it was like, you know, having the belief that you have all the answers and they suffer from like delusions of grandeur is the way he described it. And uh, the the person who gave the interview was named David Wolf, by the way. And uh, he said it started in childhood and they typically grow up in controlling houses households, which this guy did for sure. You just like watch out for your kid indoctrinating others into believing whatever they believe. How does a parent even keep an eye out for that? He said the charismatic features stands out and then they have a healthy dose of paranoia and suspicion and want to lead people to believe to drop the old way of living and then look towards the new world, which is my point of view. Well, that's textbook rock, if I've ever heard it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So in 1970, Rock underwent ulcer surgery. It left him with really bad pain and incurable digestive issues. This is estimated to be about the time that he started to become really obsessive with medicine and healthy living and everything that that encompasses. He lost his job and then turned to religion. This is about the time he joined the Seventh-day Adventists. Eventually, he charmed an entire group of the Adventists to quit their job and join his cult, which I don't think he was saying, join my cult. It wasn't called a cult then. It was a group of people that had similar thoughts and ideas. And those similar thoughts and ideas were the ones that he told them to think and believe. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So at one point, he started going by Moses. Super chill. <laughs> and then there's different accounts of like him saying that he had met God or that he knew God and he was like a representation of God. There's so many different accounts that I had read during this. And it's just that should be like spoiler alert. I think that one of the things that is difficult in the modern era with religion is that when someone says they're speaking to God, they're thought of as crazy. However, most religions tell you that God will speak to you if you're very special and important. So I'm like, how does that work? If your religion tells you like God will speak to you, but then in your everyday life, the world's like, if you say God is talking to you, we are concerned. I think that's just an interesting kind of juxtaposition, if you will, because I think that if God was ever speaking to anybody now, they would 
would just be treated like they were crazy. But I also don't think God was talking to him. Anywho, so Rock started getting more and more people to follow him. So not surprisingly, the Adventists kicked him out. So basically what he did is he took the the group of people that chose to you know follow him. And his goal was to create a sinless commune. And I want to say he was making that health center as well. That sounds very boring. <laughs> a health center? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, a sinless commune. <laughs> health center. Yeah, doctor, super snooze fest. <laughs> His followers at the time were four men, nine women, and four children. And they moved to what they called the Eternal Mountain near the Gospe Village, which was, I believe, semi-remote too. There's a reason he made them move with him. And that's one of the first parts is to isolate the person away from their friends and family so that all they have is you, which he did. So the followers wore the same tunics, which symbolized equality. Cool, cool. Uniforms. Yeah, of course. I feel like if I was hanging out with a new group of friends and step one was we're all going to move away together and step two was we're all going to wear matching clothes, I think I would at that point maybe run through a checklist. Do we have a charismatic leader? Yeah, but also were the clothes really comfy? This would be my first question because is it worth that? Well, and when you think of like the 70s and 80s too, it was like, think of like hippies, right? And wanting to go off and do spiritual adventures, right? That was pretty common. It seemed normal at the time. Not all of it, but pieces of it seemed fairly normal, or at least the beginning. That is fair. That is very fair. And also, this is the 1970s, 1980s, before, you know, cults were chatted about all the time. And there's a thousand podcasts dedicated to cults and hindsight's 2020. Literally. So while there, members couldn't communicate with their families because they were thought to be corrupt. What, what does this remind you of, too? Red flag. One might say that they have dark energy. Yeah, maybe dark spirits. I don't know. So also they initially needed to build the commune, right? And they were so busy building that they didn't really have the opportunity to think about what they were doing. He kept them so absolutely busy that they were unable to really think about anything else. It was just, we have this job to do. We have to do it from morning to night. I would also imagine that if you were a part of building something and it was something that you believed in, you'd probably be excited to do that work. So I could see how you could completely kind of put blinders on and just focus on the task at hand and getting things done because you're working on building something with people who you care about. Also, from what I had heard, they were trying to stay ahead of winter. Oh, yeah. So they're like, we got to get on the get. So here's kind of the beginning portion of where some of the abuse started. His physical discipline of his cult members started with hitting them with belts. And rules continued to become more strict as time went on. So it started out kind of like a normal group. And then little by little, it was like, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do this. I even read eating more food was a no-no. You weren't allowed to ask for more food or eat more food or you'd get in trouble. I would imagine if they had scarce resources, that would make sense. And also, in 2021, if someone non-consensually hits you with a belt, you're likely gonna just excuse yourself and be like, no, thank you. However, this was, again, 70s and 80s, when maybe that was something that happened when kids grew up. There was a time when teachers could hit you with rulers and stuff like that. So this doesn't seem that severe when you're putting it in that context. Yeah, but it continued to grow. So the abuse grew and it got more horrific as he went on. So eventually cult members weren't even allowed to talk to one another without permission. And he essentially married all of the women in the cult so that he could have children with them and increase the number of members in this group. 
One of the little tidbits that I thought was interesting was I assumed that because he had married all of them that he wouldn't want them to be in other relationships. So I was a little bit surprised when I read that some of the cult members were couples in the group. So the women that were married to him. And so they would be in a couple, but they weren't married, but they would have sex, but they would have to get his permission to have sex. And so that's sex outside of marriage, which is considered a sin in his sinless community. It's a confusing logic to follow. I will say there was a reporter, too, that went in the future, went to the commune and asked him about that because she was very curious. She was like, how is it having this many wives? How does that even happen? And he replied something like, he said the women love him and he loves them. Babies come and it's only natural. And it's not like a typical marriage. It's more of an agreement. Like, this is what we're going to do for each other. Very, very strange. Yeah. And I'll talk about her later. But her experience there was very strange when she went to visit them. So Tarot fathered 26 children with his cult members. That's too many children. That is a lot of children. Yeah. And his kids called him Pappy. Don't like it. And so we're going to start our more gruesome discussions of Tyrio. And it's going to start with he was physically and sexually abusing his children. And the children were all weirdly well behaved because they were so afraid of abuse. From what I also saw, Ross Liver, the one that wrote the book, he got this information from someone who was there. So what he would do is he'd take the child, he'd hold them up to a tree trunk, and then he'd drive knives into their clothes to essentially pin the child against the tree. Then from there, he would get their mother to come and he would instruct her to throw rocks at the kid. And if she, you know, refused or was like, no, no, I can't do that, which is normal behavior. No, I'm not going to throw rocks at my kid. Then he would threaten to hurt the child even worse if they wouldn't do it. Appalling. One of the themes that we're going to see a lot is him testing people's loyalty out of a very deep paranoia. And this is, I think, a fantastic example of that, of how he would test people's loyalty and there was no reprieve either way. So even if they were trustful, they were still getting punished. Absolutely. Rock believed that there was an apocalypse coming that would be triggered when there was a battle between good and evil. And who does this sound like to you? The Daybells. Absolutely. So the entire time I'm reading this and like how he got started and like the religion and then singing that, you know, he knows when the end of times is coming. I'm just like, oh my gosh, this sounds just like Chad Daybell. And Chad Daybell wrote books about it and and all kinds of crazy things. And then I wonder if Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow were able to continue going. Would they have, if they would have like gotten all the people together in Idaho like they wanted, what would have happened next? Yeah, that's scary. Well, also, he already had a following too. Like he'd written lots of books. And so if you don't know who Laurie Vallow and Chad Dabel are, we're going to have an episode coming out on them for Valentine's Day. We wanted to do kind of like couples who commit crime. And I can think of no more interesting couple right now than the Daybells. Absolutely. Yeah. And just they're in the they were literally in the news earlier today. So they are all over the place. And just his level of, you know, getting a following and getting people to do horrible, terrible things to other people. I'm like, this is what happened, you know, and like if they weren't caught when they were, I I'm very nervous to think like what would have come next. I think that's one of the interesting things of the digital age is that you can get more of a following more quickly, but also people might notice also more quickly. Yeah. But so back to Anhill kids. As time passes, Rock's drinking increases more and more and more and more until the end of this story. So when they were talking to some of the women that lived there, one of them replied, when it was nice out, he would be in a good mood. And then when it wasn't nice out and it was like raining or the weather was bad, he drank. 
And when he drank, we never knew what he would do. Living with that kind of unpredictability is just really awful. That's sad that that was their world, you know, like they were stuck. And when I say stuck, like he made it where you couldn't just get up and leave. You know, you were afraid to say that you were thinking about leaving and then you'd get punished for even thinking it. I never saw a point where he was like, you know what, perhaps I need to get a handle on this addiction. It seems like he just let himself become his worst version of himself, which is saying something for a person who nailed kids to trees. But so, as we mentioned, they worked very hard and they supported themselves by making preserves, baked goods, maple syrup and smoking fish and they would sell it. There were two tiers almost of people in his group. He had a favorite group and a less favorite group. As far as like the wives, in a sense, he had like favorite wives and he treats some better here and there in front of the other ones. And then the other ones would like starve for that attention. And then they'd act, they'd compete for his attention or his like, you know, his kindness. Yeah. Well, if you know that you could be treated better, wouldn't you want to be? Right. But I think it was part of that psychological game he was playing with them. He'd be like, this one's my favorite today. And he'd like be a little bit sweeter to her. And then the other would notice and be like, what the hell? Like they would be like, and this is just my speculation, but I feel like they would turn on each other almost in a sense. Like when, when we get to some of the gruesome stuff, they sat back and let it happen. And I'm not saying it's their fault. It's because they were conditioned to think that way. But it would almost turn into this big weird competition between the people there. And he'd probably just sit there and watch it unfold, you know? Well, yeah. And if you're thinking of this group of people who are not allowed to interact with one another, he is the person who they communicate with. And if he doesn't want to communicate with them, that's kind of everything. And that there was a level of that too. You could be in the higher level and then the lower level, even though they had no rights or weren't allowed to think already, the lower level was treated even worse. So one of the girls we'll talk about in a bit, her name was Gabrielle. And she said, I was in the second group, the low class group. I had no rights to say anything, to be against anything. We have to accept what's going on no matter what. And if you don't accept it, then you will be punished. My heart breaks for them. So Rock thought that the world was going to end in 1979. Okay, Chad Daybell. So... He had the cult move to the wilderness of Canada where he thought that they would be safe. So 1979 hits and the world doesn't end. Surprise, surprise, the world doesn't end. And so what he says is that God's time zone is different than Earth's. That is the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the movie The Greasy Strangler. I've only ever gotten 11 minutes in because I can't. But they call people bullshit artists in the movie. And he is most certainly a bullshit artist. God's in a different time. Absolutely. But I just can't believe that was like, why didn't the world end? And oh, the time zone thing was a little wrong. We just got the timing off. But it, don't worry, it's ending. Okay. The genius of that response is that he likely wouldn't know God's time zone. So whenever. But he talks all the time, right? Why? Yeah. Why didn't they? Yeah, they should talk about it more then. So, of course, the followers bought this time zone nonsense. So one of the big reasons that some of the parents were starting to worry is because they were seeing the coverage of the 1978 Jonestown mass suicide. And they were starting to kind of sense some of those similarities and go, wait a minute. They're in this weird commune. You know, I can't talk to them. I can't get a hold of them. Makes sense. And I'm glad. Like, I'm glad that they watched that unfold. And they're like, huh, this seems weird. But one of the parents, and they were the parents of Chantelle Labrie, got a court order for a psychiatric exam of her. They raided the commune and Rock was arrested for obstruction of justice. And what they did is they held him for a psychiatric evaluation as well. And here's what got to me. So I've only seen this in one place and it was that 
that documentary. And of course, all of our sources will be on our website. But from what the documentary said, they said when the exam was over, the head of psychiatry at the hospital that he you know, had his evaluation at called a news conference at the hospital and told the media that he was an example of like back to the land type person. He was a wonderful man. He was a man of God, just had all of these praises and that it was just terrible that the police were subjecting him to this. I hope that he really sat with his guilt later because being like, oh, he was such a wonderful man. What a victim. I don't know why he has an accent, but whatever. So just absolutely insane that would even happen. And again, I couldn't find a lot of information on this press conference, probably because it was embarrassing if it actually did happen. And I don't really understand why they would call a press conference for this unless he got into her head too. And then also they mentioned sending a patient that was battling some like mental health issues to recuperate with Rock at his property. And I believe this was Guy Veer, which we're going to talk about that they sent. Yeah. Oh, this is the part where if if you have any sensitivities or it, it does involve a child, you may want to skip ahead or, you know, make the right choice for you. So in 1982, one of the boys who lived in the commune, his name was Samuel. He was two years old. He was having issues peeing. So Rock sliced his penis. And so the two-year-old boy would stop crying. Not surprising. He's probably in a lot of pain. And so Rock ordered another follower to beat the child. And that follower was Guy Veer. So there's differing accounts on this, which I found really strange because there's different stories that came of this. Some say that Guy had beat the child. And then when he was either very hurt or in some cases I saw he was in a coma, that's when he decided to circumcise him and that'll fix it. And then there's accounts on that that said that he willingly did it because Rock told him it was going to cure his headaches. I don't know. I don't know which one's right, but either way, it's terrible abuse of a child. Appalling just monstrous. Ultimately, the child died from these injuries. And there's a number of things that happened to him. I I do believe he was beat. I do understand that Rock tried some crazy weird surgery for no reason at all. But from what I saw, the ultimate reason for his death was that he died from alcohol poisoning because they poured it down his throat as an anesthetic to a two-year-old. We're going to continue to talk about times when people didn't stand up for their fellow cult members. And this is the atmosphere and the environment that Rock created. He purposely made it so they couldn't talk to each other or they weren't allowed to talk to each other so that they couldn't say, you know, this feels wrong to one another, right? They're just sitting in their own thoughts, doubting themselves. If they believe in what he's saying and they more importantly believe in him, if he's saying he can heal this child, they're going to let him. And because they think that what he's doing is good. Well, and they they thought he was talking to God, right? Like they thought that he must be making the godly choice to do what he was doing. Yeah. And so to conceal the boy's death, they set his body on fire. I also read that Rock told the commune to say that the boy had been trampled by a horse, which is a very specific type of injury that doesn't include fire. So I don't really understand why that would be what he would say to do. Rock punished fear by castrating him. When I was researching to find the different types of torture that he inflicted, I'm not sure if it was Veer or it was a different cult member. But at one point, 
rock placed a rubber band around the testicles of a follower. And so they became swollen and infected after about eight hours. So he removed the testicle and then cauterized the wound with a hot iron. This isn't the last time you're going to hear about him botching medical procedures. This seems like a pattern that he follows with his own grandiose thinking that he's able to do these even though he doesn't have any formalized training that we're aware of. Well, and you know something that I didn't know at first until I finally watched an interview with her? Gabrielle was studying to work in the medical field. He had someone that knew a bit. I I don't know how far she got or what actually happened, but she probably had more knowledge of things. And, you know, remember, she's a second class part of the group, too. But it's just, yeah, the abuse and the torture is astonishing. If you've gone to a doctor, you have more knowledge than what he's doing to people. You know what I mean? I want to say that Veer ended up escaping at some point, like shortly after he was castrated. And then he notified authorities, but didn't tell the whole truth. And I read too, that was one of Veer's accounts that ultimately he still couldn't like throw rock under the bus. He made up another wild story of what happened to the kid. So I don't know. There's so many stories around this one situation. It's hard to decipher. Rock and eight of his followers were arrested and charged with criminal negligence and for causing bodily harm. They were subsequently released, I think about after 14 months, but it looks like some of the commune members had left, but obviously some of them stayed. He would communicate with them from behind bars. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's same thing like no I've changed this helped me see things differently you know it's gonna be great he would also say how much he loved them and he would say that when he got out it was gonna be different than before and that they were gonna live in peace which breaks my heart that they believed him you know right and 14 months is a decent amount of time that they just waited around to some of them left but yeah the ones that stayed if you've ever experienced abuse in your life one of the things that's really easy to do the further you get out is to minimize it in your own head and if you keep that abuser in your life it's happening in your own head and it's likely happening from that abuser as well so they're like no 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 it wasn't that bad it wasn't that bad but it's going to be better at the same time it seems like both couldn't be possible but I could very much see how when he spent that 14 months in prison, they were like, you know what? Like, it wasn't that bad. Most of us were fine. It was only a few things. Yeah. And I think that they at that point were probably were used to, you know, making all of the things that they sold. So after he was released from prison, they moved to Burnt River, Ontario, which was even more secluded than it was before. Sometime after 1984, when they were released, there was another child who died. But it's interesting because there's some varying accounts of how he died. So in some sources that I saw that he died when his mother left him outside in a blizzard and that she was trying to protect him from Rock's abuse. So what I had found is that it might have been one of Gabrielle's children that this happened to. Ultimately, she had two children with Rock and they were taken away from her to be raised by some of the favored women. And one day, either the baby couldn't be consoled or something was wrong where they weren't sure if it it was a punishment to the baby or maybe even Gabrielle. But Rock instructed them to leave the baby wrapped in a thin, shitty blanket and left outside in a wheelbarrow in the middle of winter for several hours. And then when they came back to check on him, he had died. And then in one of the interviews with Gabrielle, she said that he had died on January 26th of 1985. And it was because of crib death syndrome. And she had the paperwork, like the medical paperwork to show that. And I've read a couple different accounts that they actually had someone come to the house, which is very odd that they'd actually allow someone to come to the house for this. And that they said the baby died of SID. I also wonder if it wasn't immediately clear because they brought the baby inside after it died. 
You know what I mean? If the person came out and the baby was outside, they would probably make some assumptions. But if they had the baby there a few days and they were like, we don't know what happened. And then somebody comes, it might be harder to ascertain the cause of death, especially in a really rural area like this. So I don't know if maybe he charmed that person too and got a false document made. I don't know how that happened. I can't find a lot of information on it. Yeah. It's crazy the things that he would do. And then it's just interesting that there's so many different accounts for the same situation. Ultimately, this kid died being, you know, left outside, right? But then there's SIDS. It's why was he left outside? There's varying details of why, what he was doing, where he was put. It's just, it's crazy. So Rock began to spy on them and he would punish those who did not appear devout enough. Crazy. Yeah. And so if someone tried to leave or he suspected that they were tried, trying to leave, he would hit them with hammers or bells, suspend them from the ceiling, pluck each and every hair from their bodies individually and defecate on them. So outside of being punished, if you even had the idea or looked like you had the idea to leave, it was difficult to leave either way based on the location of the property. It was very isolated. It was in a dense forest. And also, especially in the winter, if they escaped, where were they going to go? How were they going to survive through this wilderness? Yeah. So I brought up a journalist earlier and her name is Debbie Velasca. She was sent by her publisher to cover the story because I guess it was like the talk of the town. People wanted to know who are these people that are living in the middle of nowhere? What are they doing? Why are they here? And some people had gotten interviews, I guess. And for every interview that they had done, they were always looked at positively because they would put on this fancy show. They would be a loving, caring, nice group. Rock would be on good behavior. They'd make like a feast with a bunch of different foods. So it looked like everyone was well fed, well mannered. And then, you know, as soon as the reporter would leave, it would go back to hell. But anyway, so Debbie was tasked with finding the place and getting information. And the first time she tried, she came on foot. And I'm guessing it was a winter at the time. (laughs) And she went through like the dense woods. She, She recalled walking for a very long time and like following various logging roads. And then she's not sure, she doesn't actually mention if she was close to them or if she got close to the compound, but someone started shooting and the bullets were hitting the trees around her. She remembers crouching and like screaming, like someone's here, stop shooting, thinking hopefully maybe it was like someone hunting. I don't know. But then she was like, I just need to get out of there. Like she left, right? Then she decided to go back, but this time with another person, with another reporter, and they took a four-wheeler. And they get there. And by the time they get there, it's dark. Two of the women met them when they walked in. And again, no one knew where the entrance was. No one really knew anything about this. She recalls them being very agitated that she was there. And she was like, nope, I stood my ground. I'm like, I need to talk to Rock. The women were like, well, he's going to be upset. But they brought her in. When she walked in, she passed a table with 12 kids sitting silently. Just think about that. 12 children sitting silent. That's not a thing. Eerie. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. So she's like, they weren't talking. There's no fidgeting. There was nothing. Yeah. That's very strange and unnerving. It was just sitting at this like long table, just silent. When she finally got to meet him, this was what she said. He was very philosophical. He said, if you go downstream, the waters are muddy from people walking through it, drinking from it. But by coming to the source of the river, the water is clean. By coming to the source, you've come to me. And so you've come to the truth. And... (laughs) 
I liked her a lot because she's like, all I thought of was like, this is a con man. She's the one that like asked him about like being married to so many women and that sort of thing. But I guess they spoke for a short time and then she was escorted off the property. I saw a few different photos of him, but there's one photo where he looks like he's in contemplation. I would also imagine that along with the charade of a feast and well-behaved children, he also had a contrived, cool, stoic charm that people liked. The reason why they might have been agitated is because they weren't prepared for company, right? So they always prepare. They have this thing. And this is me just speculating about it. But they probably thought, what if she sees him in the wrong fashion, in the wrong way? What if he doesn't look like he's the perfect person right now? We can't let that happen. Yeah. There was plenty of things she could have walked in on. Right? What if like she walked in when he was doing something terrible, one of his crazy surgeries or having someone throw rocks at children? So we talked about what he did if he thought that you were going to leave. He also had ways of just general discipline if you misbehaved and ways that he would have his followers prove their loyalty. So he would do things like perform surgery on his cult members while other cult members held them down. And he would use whatever kitchen utensils were available, plus flyers or a blowtorch during surgery. He would force them to break their own legs with sledgehammers. So they certainly weren't going to be able to just leave, shoot each other in the shoulders to eat their own or others feces or insects or rats. He would remove their teeth and nails. He would make them sit naked on lit stoves. He would cut off their arms or legs. He would make them sit naked outside in the cold and he would whip and beat them. He also instituted gladiator tournaments where he would force his followers, typically I'm assuming not all of them, but a few, into a dirt ring and make them fight. Hunger Games style? Gruesome stuff. And I would imagine that the gladiator tournaments were normally the lower class that you had talked about earlier. I bet, yeah. Or whoever wronged him that day. Yeah, I could see bending to someone's standard for how to be if this is what happens if you don't. I certainly would get in line real quick. Even if you kind of woke up and were like, this isn't okay, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Who's going to believe you? Yeah. And they were so involved in this, right? I'm sure they were fearful. They couldn't show it, but I'm sure they were because even if you are completely out of it, you still don't want your arm cut off, you know? So they're probably just like, I'm glad it wasn't me today. So in 1985, 10 social workers and six police officers raided the commune. 14 children were removed. They were ages five months to 16 years old. I think of the small kids being tortured. That breaks my heart. Also, think of the 16-year-olds. They are going to remember all of that. I understand the adults made that choice to go there. Not saying that they deserved anything. But yeah, the older children, that's outside of their control. I found it fascinating that he didn't seem to show a preference, to my knowledge, in his abuse between his biological children and those that weren't his biological children. He was an equal opportunity asshole. So the social workers went person to person and basically wanted to get the mothers to come with them. So what they said was like, if you want your child or some of them multiple children, you just have to come with us. You have to leave Rock. You have to leave Moses because some referred to him as Moses. And then you'll be able to, you know, be safe with your children. But if you decide to stay, then we will have to put them up for adoption. Guess how many mothers left with him? None. Not one single mother chose to leave Rock to go with their children. Do you think that they were still worried that Rock would hurt them? 
But if there was a raid, they would be safe to just stroll on out should they want to. Yeah, at least from what I understand. But again, you don't know the intricacies of what he threatened them with. Did he threaten, well, if you leave, I'll kill the person you're closest with here? Or what if they both didn't make the same decision? I don't know. That's me thinking about it. But I wonder if there was someone there that they cared about or were fearful that he would hurt them. Or maybe he even said, like, I'll find your family. Yeah, I would also say, though, the abuse got so much worse after they moved to Burnt River, Ontario. And that was after some commune members left after his prison stint. I would wonder if he said things like, if they hadn't left, this wouldn't happen. And if you are a person who's been there since the beginning and you know when people left, this is what he did. We started breaking our own legs with sledgehammers to prove our love for him. So like, what would he ask of them then? Maybe. That makes sense. From what I understand, too, it got even worse after the children were gone. So between 1986 and 1987, they came back. Nine more children were born in the commune and they were removed from the commune by authorities within days of their birth, which I'm so happy that those you know little babies never had to endure anything like what the others did. I'm surprised they didn't hide them. I'm sure they tried. So after this, Rock starts seeing himself more and more godlike rather than just the recipient of God's word. One of the things he starts to do with more frequency is performing surgery. In 1998, Solange Boliard complained to Rock that her stomach was bothering her. In the documentary that Amanda watched, Gabrielle mentioned that he had first taken her to the woods and he beat Solange. And that when she came back, she was, quote, covered in bruises and was in a pitiful state. And so Rock said that he had to get the devil out of her. And when the beating didn't work, he needed to perform surgery. So again, this is a very gruesome part. So if you're not great on hearing very gruesome details, you might want to skip ahead. So he makes Solange get naked and he lays her on the kitchen table. He then punched her in the stomach. He shoved a tube up her rectum and filled her as much as he could with a mixture of olive oil and molasses. I can't think of any good reason why that would do anything good. So he then proceeds to cut her abdomen open and he pulls out her intestines with his bare hands. In the interview with Gabrielle, she talks about Solange being calm and peaceful while this is all happening. I wonder if she disassociated. Do you know what I mean? Like she was like, I'm not here. She also could have passed out. Like I honestly think that she likely passed out from the original beating or she maybe saw her sleeping and was like, if you can sleep through that, you must be at peace. It could be. Yeah. And maybe just Gabrielle couldn't see that. When you're passed out or passed out sleeping, your eyes are not going to be like clenched shut in pain. So she probably did look peaceful compared to what I would imagine someone would be experiencing if someone was like performing surgery without an anesthetic. Oh, maybe. Okay. So he then makes other cult members remove her uterus. Then he stitches her back up. And before he stitches her back up, he kind of shoves everything back inside. Very medical. Then he takes a tube. I am not sure if it's the same tube or not. And has the women of the cult puff air into it. I wonder if it's kind of like a mock CPR, but that's not how that works. No. And so she dies the next day. Right. That was the one thing I was like, she didn't die on the table. Like she made it, I want to say like to bed that night or something. Yeah. And then he was upset that she died. Was he? Was he upset? I mean, probably not. Because here's what happens. So Rock says he's a prophet, right? He's been telling people this over and over. He says he, as a prophet, has the power to resurrect her. I roll because what the fuck? What he says will resurrect her is they drill a hole into her skull. And then he has every male member of the cult ejaculate into the hole in her skull. 
He's then surprised when she doesn't come back to life. So what he does is he takes one of her ribs and then he puts it in a little leather case that he wore around his neck and then directs his followers to bury her in the commune. There's there's no reply to that. My, my face, I think, said it all, which no one else can see. But I, I don't know. I just don't know. There's no logic in it. There's no magical thinking that makes sense in it. I I don't understand. Nor should you, you know, like, it, I think that shows if you don't understand any of this, that you're going to be okay. So we're going to talk about Gabrielle Lavalle. And I've referenced her a lot already. But the reason why I did is because she did an interview and she talked about some of her accounts while there. So I figured, you know, something that comes directly from someone who was there is probably going to be accurate for the most part. Yeah, I think at the very least, it's an accurate portrayal of her perception because anybody who went through this, one, my heart hurts for them. But two, I would imagine that your memory would do strange things, not make it untrue. It doesn't make it untrue. I'm just saying it might distort certain things. Like when she was very adamant that her child died of SIDS, her brain could have been like, this is what we're going to hone in on. When I was watching her talk, I, you know, like my heart sunk and I'm like, this poor woman endured what? And we're going to talk about it. And then some of the things or the ways that she said things, I was like, I feel like she still is kind of in it in a sense. I understand it's not just going to go away. You know, it's not going to go away. She watched, she found one of her kids dead and one of the other ones got taken away to be raised with the higher class. And then ultimately they got taken away or she got taken away again, her daughter, and then adopted out. So this woman went through that. And then on top of that physical abuse. What kind of physical abuse? So here's what happened during her time with Rock. And it's hard for me to even say these because it's just so grotesque and horrible. She had eight of her teeth removed with pliers with no nubbing agent. She had a hypodermic needle broken off into her spine. He then chased her with a knife and cut a tendon off of her hand. He took a blowtorch to her genitals. He also amputated parts of her breast and smashed her head in with an axe. She escaped at one point and went back, which for some reason, she didn't really talk about that part in the interviews, I noticed. The people that were in his cult were in the lowest point of their life, and they probably didn't have a place to go. And who else in the world is going to understand what you've been through better than the people who you were with? So maybe it's not him. Maybe it's that there's other people there who get her and get what she's been through. Whereas I would imagine when she got out, like go back to life is normal. And she's trying to get a job and act like everything's fine when she has this incredible amount of trauma. Right, right. So at one point, and this is from the interview with her, he Rock asks his concubines to write him letters. And these letters had to include like praising him in some fashion. And she had mentioned she had a hard time with that. So he wanted to make an example out of her. And this is what she believes why he did this. He mentioned that if you're going to be stubborn like she is, then you're going to go through what she's going through now. She believes that she might have been getting on his nerves. And yeah, it was maybe because of the letters. But again, remember, she was in the second group of people, too. So he just didn't like her as much as some of the others, I guess. And she needed to be taught a lesson. So he grabbed her hand. He forced it down on that big wooden kitchen table where he does all his psycho surgeries. And he took a knife and he stabbed through her hand. And they basically had mentioned they essentially crucified her hand to the table. So the knife went through, went into the table. She couldn't move her hand, just unfortunately to give you a visual. She recalled thinking she was going to die that night. She was already suffering from a broken arm that had become infected. And then this happened. 
I didn't know that that could get infected. Do you, do you think it was a compound fracture where it was like sticking out? Neither did I. I don't know. I had just read that something was already wrong with her arm and there was a couple accounts that I saw, but then some places didn't even mention that she had a prior injury. But again, like this laundry list of things that had happened to her, I, I wouldn't put it past Rock to do something to her arm as well. Yeah. Maybe she took a sledgehammer to it. We have no idea. So, and that, that would explain an infection too, because it would have been caused by the outside. So the weird thing is she remembers having no feeling of fear. And that was a what moment to me? You know, like, oh, I think I might die. And it was just kind of, I, I, she was just in that state where it wasn't even scary anymore. If you had been living this life, if you suddenly thought it was going to end, I would imagine you might invite that. So still unable to move because her hand is stuck to the table. Rock took a carpet knife and they described it as like a hooked knife. I didn't know what a carpet knife was. And he began carving away flesh on her arm. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So the guy in the documentary that, you know, was kind of talking back and forth between Gabrielle and him. And she does have kind of a thick accent, too. So some of the stuff they kind of elaborated on. But the guy said it was over a period of an hour or two. I I just sat there for a minute like, how the hell did this happen? You know, an hour or two while someone is carving piece by piece by your knife. It's like some fucked up martyr situation. Oh, my gosh. I am surprised that she didn't die from blood loss. Yeah. Well, I think the way he was doing it was just like skinning her. But I mean, with just your arm, I don't no, that's how the way that they described it was like a hooked knife and they were like peeling away. You know, that didn't I, I read that note. I heard you say it much like people just diving into the ocean. My brain refused to translate it into what you were actually saying to picture it in my head. I was picturing he was just like sawing, but the knife was dull. No, no, he was peeling away pieces. And I, I did have to go because I that's one of the parts where I had to. All right, documentary. I've had enough for a minute. I'll be back. <laughs> this is too much. That's insane. I mean, the other stuff is horrific, but her talking about it kind of broke my heart. Speaking of heartbreaking, you mentioned it earlier, but she said maybe he didn't like me because I wasn't good at praising him. And maybe I got on his nerves and didn't say maybe he's a fucking monster. You know, maybe he's just a bad person who likes to hurt people. And it had nothing to do with who she was or what she was good or wasn't good at because sawing someone's arm off is not a reasonable reaction to someone not being good at writing love letter right and if that was that was the case she she was like maybe it was a letter we don't know for sure why he did this there's no reason to do any of this the amount of abuse that they had been through that she had suffered specifically is not the type of abuse that you can just get out of your head right like I would imagine to go through something like this she would have had to love rock maybe not romantically but like as a false love actually no I'm not even going to say false love because to her it may have been real but it's it's made up like he manipulated it, though. So that's why I would say false, because he it's he made it. Yes, but it doesn't feel any different. Like if someone manipulates you or tricks you into loving them, you still loved them, even if the reason why you fell for them wasn't there. You know what I mean? I, I would imagine she stayed as long as she did and did as much as she did because she believed in him and like in, in some way loved him as a leader or like maybe not romantically, maybe it's just like a person. But I think that kind of like gets its claws into you. And pr talking about this probably takes her back to that mindset, right? Like I guess. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure it was hard to talk about it. So in her words, this is another part where I'm like, yep, she lost some of herself there. She said, what I went through, I was in God's presence. 
I was surrounded by God's love so much. It was so great what I went through. And the narrator then said, not really great for what happened, but that God returned to her. And she claims that during this, and again, I think you were right, where they kind of go away while this stuff's happening to them. She claims that while this was happening to her, she heard, I love you from God. And that, in her words, was the key that helped me to open the psychological jail. That's when she also realized that he wasn't a representative of God and that he was the devil, right? And so I'm like, it's sad that it took this to wake her up. But oh my gosh, can you imagine though, recalling that and going, it was so great what I went through because it it ultimately saved her from who knows what he would have done to her next. But like, what? I could see that. She's like, I needed a catalyst and I lived through my catalyst. Terrible. Like we reached the pinnacle of what he could do to me without me dying. And I lived. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. She survived this and she waited 19 days to escape. And she calls August 14th, 1989, her freedom day. She made it to a hospital and she says two men, her surgeon and the chief of police, helped her to reconcile with all men. That it's not all men that are terrible. Her strength. Amazing. After Rock was arrested for the assault against Lavella, another member led authorities to Solange's body. Rock pled guilty to three counts of aggravated assault and one count of unlawfully causing bodily harm for the violence against Lavelli. And he received 12 years in prison. Then he, 12, 12 years for all of that. No, absolutely not. Too little. But so he was subsequently tried for the murder of Solange Bolliard and he pled guilty to second degree murder for what was done to her. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole until the year 2000. He is imprisoned at Millhaven Institution in Kingston. Not surprisingly, other prisoners were threatening his life. While he was in prison, he continued to have conjugal visits with his wives and fathered four more children. How? How did they let that go on? He is in prison and can no longer hurt them. And he was probably his best version of himself that he had ever been. Right? Think about it. Like, he was probably charming and sweet. You can only have one visitor at a time. So he's just giving them, like, lovely attention. So he's that sunny day rock that they all wanted a piece of. He played the role again. In 1993, three of his former cult disciples lived within a couple miles of the prison. Together, they owned and operated a bakery together. The three cult members were Chantal Labrie, which Amanda had mentioned earlier, Nicole Rule, and Francine and Francine Laflame. And so Francine specifically, she had conjugal visits every six weeks. They had four previous children together. Their eight-year-old had been removed from the compound in 1985. The second, who was five, was taken a few days after she was born. Like Amanda said, she was given the choice to stay or leave with her baby. She chose to stay. She said, people try to make Rock sound like a monster, like a butcher, but he is not that. Most of the time, he was not drinking and performing his operations. He was a marvelous man who was full of passion, intelligence, and originality. He loved to laugh and dance. And I do not give a fuck how melodic your laughter is or how great of a dancer you are that does not make up for the fact that you did what you did. It sounds like she was in the the top tier and didn't have anything bad happen to her, maybe. She didn't get to experience what he was doing to others. And it's sad that she could see him torture someone and then still say what a great man he is. She wrote a book about him and said wonderful things. She, yeah, I wanted to find it in English, but I could not. I believe it's just in French. 
So something sweet that Gabrielle had said towards the end of the interview is that, remember, her daughter was taken away and put up for adoption. She was able to actually visit with her. And that just made me so happy. I think the daughter was still very young when she got to meet with her. She talked to her adoptive parents and she brought her a teddy bear or something. That made me happy that she got to at least see her. And then she also had written a book on her experience and got to do book tours. And she got to go to like schools and like women's groups and talk. So at least like for how much she went through, like she at least had kind of a happy ending. I think it's good that she shares her experience because there's a beginning step where she got on this path. And if she can help even one person not take that first step, I'm sure that would be good for her soul. Amanda, would you like to do something else sweet? Rock was murdered in prison in 2011. His his cellmate sauntered up to the guard station, handed them a knife and said, that piece of shit is down on the range. Here's the knife. I've sliced him up. Thank goodness. There was an interview with his son, Francois, and he wasn't surprised at all that his father had been killed. And he said, quote, I was so scared of him when I was small. He would say my name and I would tremble like a leaf, which just so heartbreaking. He also described his father as someone who was a shark who needed to see blood, which actually sounds very accurate. Children are innocent. They're not going to sugarcoat things. They're going to say what they saw. And I mean, some of it might be a little funky, but the way that they see things is just very clear. Yeah. So like when he's saying as a kid, I was scared when he said my name and he was a shark that needed to see blood. Francois published a book of his experiences in 2009. Unfortunately, again, I couldn't find it in English. That would be an interesting read, but I feel like it would be a very depressing read for any of their books. Yeah, they would all be very sad and heartbreaking. But I think that it's important to have like first person accounts of what happens in a cult because otherwise, you know, you stand on the outside and go, how could you do that? How could this happen? And then if you've never heard an experience from someone, then it's a little harder to understand just how, just like as I was saying a second ago, how you take that first step that gets you 50 steps down the line and you're cracking your knee with a sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so interesting. And when, when you look at him too, like some of the pictures, he had what, like bright eyes and and was his persona was like easy to talk to and like happy and, ex- and, and excited for life, right? And then when you know what happened and then you look at him and you're like, oh my gosh, he's an absolute monster. Do you know who he kind of reminds me of? And it could just be the time period. He reminds me a little bit of Charles Manson, like a Canadian wilderness Charles Manson. That's just the kind of vibe that I get from him, like the look in his eye in pictures where you're just like, I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very, I don't know. I like it, it's a gruesome story to research. It's interesting. And then it also breaks your heart. I have not seen accounts of people doing this type of thing to one another outside of war. I've heard of, you know, some of the serial killers and things that they did and the torture was just horrific, but just I think it's more the idea of this one that gets me of just there were other people that were involved and not involved at the same time that this happened to as well, but they were present for this torture and allowed it to happen. And again, I understand that they were in a very weird mental state and that he he broke their brains is the best thing I could say. That seems like a very good description that he broke them down. The cult started in the mid 70s. And by 1989, he was slicing off someone's arm piece by piece. And that is a giant place to get in 15 years. 
So that's what happened with the Ant Hill kids. Again, super happy to say that Rock doesn't exist anymore in this world. And with that, have a good weekend now that we've been a downer for you. All right. And we will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 